welcome to Tipping the Balance. I'm Katie Hickey, your host, and today we hear from Dr. Rebecca Moore. Rebecca is a perinatal psychiatrist, and she is also the co-founder of Make Birth Better. Together with Dr. Emma Svanberg, their mission is to create a world where people no longer suffer from birth trauma. In today's episode, we discuss the barriers to providing holistic care in the NHS, as well as why communication and compassion are so important. Rebecca shares her advice for preparing for birth and how you can take steps to try and reduce the likelihood of having a traumatic birth experience. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being um, a guest today on Tipping the Balance. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. You're my first mental health professional that I've had on the show. So I feel really honoured that you've made time for us today. So thank you very much for that. How are you doing? I'm I'm okay, thank you. I'm tucked up in my study, uh, homeschooling, homeworking, juggling like lots and lots of people. Yeah, I'd just like to start with a a kind of exploratory question, which I know a lot of people might wonder um, the answer to. So, you are a clinical psychiatrist. That's right. Exactly. So that means that you went to medical school. You're therefore a doctor and you specialised in mental health and psychiatry after graduating medical school. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So I went to normal medical school. Then I did some um, uh, other medical jobs because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do initially. Um, And then I started my training in psychiatry and then you do another you know, five to 10 years of additional training purely around mental health. Yeah, okay. And what is the difference between a psychiatrist, psychologist and psychotherapist? Because yeah. that's something I think a lot of people might also not really understand. And and then what would make somebody see one of those, all of those different mm-hmm. um, mental health professionals? Could you explain that a bit? Yeah, of course. So psychiatrists are medical doctors. So that's the big difference, really. So we're all, doc, you know, maybe called doctor, but a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. So the biggest difference is obviously then that I can prescribe medication mm-hmm. because I'm um, a medical practitioner. So psychologists and psychotherapists, you know, also may be called doctor mm-hmm. Um and they are not medically trained, so they don't prescribe. So they are um, therapists working that might use a whole different range of therapy models like CBT. Um, So typically clinical psychologists will use models like CBT or compassion-focused therapy, whereas psychotherapists are offering a longer term piece of therapeutic work so they're all offering therapy but just different types and forms and models of therapy Mm -hmm. and some will work within the nhs and some will work privately and some will do a mixture of both Mm. Um, and i suppose you know people often will be seeing me as a psychiatrist and a therapist at the same time and that often works really really well but typically you know people would see therapy for go and see a therapist for a whole different range of things so anxiety low mood issues with relationships issues around getting pregnant 
issues um, around food, you know, all of those types of things can be helped really beautifully by therapy, which is, you know, essentially giving somebody a safe space with a specialist to kind of explore and unpick what's happening and how it feels and then perhaps some tools of how to go forward and and challenge thoughts or, mm. or feel that you can be more in control. Mm. So with a psychiatrist, people would also come and see me for all of those different reasons. But I suppose perhaps I might also be working with people that are more at a severe end of illness as well. Mm -hmm. So not that therapists can't, but we would often be co-working in that case. So, you know, sometimes people come to see me because they want to take medication because mm. they've tried therapy or, you know, they just don't want to do therapy and their preference is medication or it might be about the severity of the illness. So it might be where people are very profoundly unwell, mm. or it might be about the risk perhaps. So they might, you know, have really strong thoughts of harming themselves. Mm. And in those kind of cases, then perhaps, you know, I would be slightly more likely to be involved. Um, so it's sort of subtly different, but I think it is confusing for people. I think you know, it's really difficult, to, you know, to kind of feel, unwell and then have to navigate these systems mm. yourself sometimes because it can feel really confusing of what's right for me mm. how do I know if someone's good how do I know if they're properly trained mm. you know that can really add to the stress when you're perhaps already not feeling so well mm. yeah and I think um especially if it's your first time of trying to navigate that and and or reaching out for help and maybe I guess people might start off with going to their GP um, or I know in lots of areas you can self-refer for talking therapies um, well I know in London it was called IAPT I don't know if that's across yeah, the country that everywhere. okay yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's good to yeah. know. Would another difference be um, making a diagnosis of different conditions? Because that's, yeah. I know um, that that's a tricky thing sometimes as well. People yeah. don't like being labelled, but then other times people might want to have a diagnosis. I mean, what what's the, what's the difference there? Yeah, I mean, I think classically, historically, yes, it would probably been the case that psychiatrists would be the one who would assign a particular diagnosis to somebody and perhaps you know, some therapists would feel that that wasn't their role or that wasn't a model that they kind of subscribe to. You know, some people feel very strongly that diagnoses are not helpful and that we shouldn't be labeling people with these terms. Um, I think for me, you know, I kind of always approach it with the person that I'm working with. So some people want to name what they're experiencing mm. and they have a huge sense of relief from being able to go away, you know, read about the diagnosis, visit patient stories and feel less alone. Mm. But some people don't want a diagnosis. And, and for me personally, that's also fine because in essence, it doesn't change how I work with them or support them or treat them. Um, you know, so however we label it or frame it, I would be guided by the person and what they want. Mm. Um, I don't personally need to diagnose somebody to know how I want to work with them and support them. Mm. Um, but it, you know, it can be a very contentious issue because some people feel very strongly that we should or shouldn't diagnose. Um, but I suppose I feel 
you know, it can be helpful or not helpful. And really it depends what that person wants. Mm. Um, for me, that's always the most important thing. Mm. No, absolutely. And I mean, that brings me on to something that I was, I was looking at your website just before we jumped onto the call. I picked up on the fact that you say you offer holistic care and um, I mean, that's something that I'm really, really interested in. In medical school, I wonder how prevalent the concept of holistic all-round medicine is really a feature of medical school. That was the first thing I wondered about. And also maybe other people might not actually know what holistic care means. So yeah. could, could you talk about those things, yeah, please? of course. I mean, I think holistic, you know, means different things to different people. But to me, it, it really just is talking about a person's choices, really. I think often, you know, particularly within an NHS setting, people can get sort of very easily funneled down pathways that are quite narrow in the terms of how we see people or look at people or look at their illness. Mm -hmm. And for me, taking a holistic, you know, view means really trying to explore with that person not only their symptoms but everything you know all the different sort of constellations of their life who they are how they've grown up where they live what they eat what exercise they do what what brings them strength in their community their faith you know all of those kind of things make us us <laughs> and I think you know if we don't kind of try to think about all of those we're really um, only seeing a slice of a person so for me holistic just means you know trying to think about all those different facets that make us our own beautiful human self yeah. and and the same should then apply to treatment you know so you know it shouldn't just be well you can have this one treatment and that's it mm -hmm. because that's never going to be right for everybody um, so again you know holistic to me means thinking about all the different levels that might possibly help somebody so you know where they live how they live who they live with what are their networks what brings them joy you know what do they eat could we use supplements you know all those different things and I think in medical school um, you know I'm old <laughs> so there'll be lots of you know young people coming through that medical school I have this vision of it being this wonderful holistic experience I I suspect it's probably not but you know certainly I suspect it's not <laughs> I like to imagine it I like to imagine it. Yeah. Um, but I you know I, I suspect you know for most of us as practitioners it, it's not something that's embedded into medical school training it's still very much sort of classical diagnosis treatment it's definitely got better you know there are there are lots and lots of services that might offer acupuncture or um mm -hmm. you know yoga even yoga mm -hmm. therapy so you know there are definitely pockets where there are some really lovely wonderful practices going on but i suspect most people still see it as a bit alternative and you know not particularly well evidenced and um you know if I think back even and I know I've, you know I've read somebody that's much younger than me writing about this recently even you know in, in the way we sort of thought about nutrition and food in medical school I mean I, I can't remember having any specific training about it and I think you know there was somebody writing about it recently that's say 15 years behind me in training and he said that you know he they had one hour 
Um, you know, so if you think about it, you know, I think there are so many things where we could do so much better. And if we equipped people through their training, you know, you don't have to be the expert in it. That's why people are referred to see a nutritional specialist. Mm-hmm. But just to have more of an understanding that, of course, this is going to impact on health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's quite worrying that we haven't really shifted as much as we could really yeah yeah because I mean for me holistic therapies or holistic approach to any kind of problem that we're seeking help with yeah would mean yeah, t- taking into consideration yeah every part of that person's mm-hmm. life and knowing that every element of a person's life can affect everything else um mm-hmm. and it seems a bit yeah narrow-minded to not look at it that way and particularly I mean, with mental health, particularly, because there are so many factors, obviously, that can affect it. And our mental and physical health are very closely linked in some ways, aren't they? So, um, yeah, I mean, completely. But I mean, it's only, you know, recently that people have really placed mental and physical health on a par in terms of, you know, how important they are. And, and really begun to understood how much they interplay. And, you know, if you look at the sort of explosion of, of people looking at the gut brain axis, for example, mm. which is still really a very new thing for most practitioners to think about. So I think we are creeping there. It's just frustrating because it's too variable for people. And, you know, a person living in one part of the country might have an amazing team that offer lots and lots of different things but somebody in another area might not and you know those health inequalities are are too marked still for people Mm. yeah definitely and I mean that is evident especially when you know that I'm a birth doula and you do a lot of work in perinatal psychiatry and uh, Mm. you're the co-founder of Make Birth better so I know that that is a particular interest of yours was there anything that kind of drew you to work in that area particularly or was it just something that you always knew that you kind of wanted to work in that field it's something that I stumbled into but then it was just like a light bulb going on you know I'd always been interested in health I suppose you know I'd had asthma as a child I'd been in and out of hospital been a patient and had that experience you know mm-hmm. family history who has a very severe depression so I've had experience of that and and her care so you know lots of different kind of strands that were there mm-hmm. um, and then as soon as I started you know psychiatry I really loved it because it's just you know, as a as a discipline, it's a bit less hierarchical, it's a bit less traditional, you get lots of people that are, are quite creative, as well as scientific, which really appealed to me personally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just working with people's minds is just endlessly fascinating and a huge privilege and honour to be hearing people's stories and life stories and all the richness that that brings you because everybody is fascinating right and then I was really really lucky when I you know was very early in my training to work with with a someone who was one of the real pioneers of perinatal psychiatry and for me it was like the constellation of everything that was kind of perfect because 
you know, I was very interested in women's health and how women are treated differently within the healthcare system. Mm. It felt like somewhere where you could really make a difference about talking about that and speaking about that. It's also a discipline where, you know, you feel like you're doing preventative medicine, not just for that person, but also for future generations, because you're impacting on that whole mother-parent relationship. Mm. So it feels like something that's intensely rewarding because you're potentially changing generational outcomes Mm. and it's also a place where women can become very profoundly unwell Mm. very quickly and very dramatically but also can get really really well and so you know it's hugely rewarding because you're working with people that become very unwell and you know walking with them through to them being well parenting living their lives um so you know it's a whole kind of mixture of of things that just you know really made sense to me Mm. it's it's really inspiring hearing you talk about the 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 way that you work and the impact that you might have on lots of people um so yeah I can really imagine that I, I mean I know that it must have a lot of difficulties as well obviously it's not all it's not all rewarding and great um it can be really of course I'm sure it can be extremely challenging particularly if you're working in the NHS do you want to talk a bit about make birth better and just explain what that is yeah yeah so I suppose about five gosh maybe more seven eight years ago you know so as a as a perinatal psychiatrist you know I have a really luxury in a way in that you know I'm often spending an hour with people whereas you know often medical appointments are or for GPs they're ridiculously Mm. short so you know these are women that I've known from the very beginning of their pregnancy perhaps in a second pregnancy you know really had time to build this this lovely relationship and what I kind of just noticed was that more and more people coming back actually they might have been referred to me because of depression perhaps and when they were coming back after having had their baby it it wasn't the depression that they all wanted to talk about it was their birth experience Mm. and I just realized through hearing all these stories how many women were walking away from their births really significantly traumatized which I don't think truly I can say that I had really been aware of before. Mm. Um, You know, of course I knew about trauma and, you know, I'd worked as a psychiatrist, a lot of what you see really is trauma, Mm. but I hadn't really ever thought about it in relation to birth because it is really quite a new concept to think about birth as being traumatic. So I was just aware of this growing sort of narrative and, wanted to kind of find out more about it, couldn't really find anything specific to birth trauma. So decided (laughs) that I would like set up a conference basically just because I wanted to go to it myself. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, 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 so did this conference, which was amazing with no money on a complete NHS budget, (laughs) but you know, had amazing speakers and literally within about a day, a hundred people had signed up. So I thought, gosh, there is something out here that Mm. all these midwives and doulas and hypnobirthers know this is going on and we all want to know more about it. So I had done that and then parallel to that, um, my lovely co-founder Emma Spanberg had 
separately posted and, and asked women about their birth stories and about 75 had responded to her. And we knew each other anyway. So we sort of got together and said, look, there's something going on here that we need to raise awareness about. And so thus Make Birth Better was born. And initially it was just us, you know, as a very grassroots, we just want to kind of share information, give spaces to women, share their story, um, you know, create networks of people, think about what we might do better. And so that was in 2018. And since then it's sort of grown exponentially, which I think again shows, you know, the need for it. So we now have a CEO in place, have a big social media platform. We do lots of campaigning, mm. do lots of training of NHS teams and, and different organizational teams. Um, but you know, what, what we come from and where we come from is that voice of those families. And that will always be the central thing for us. Um, and we've been, you know, incredibly lucky in how generous people have been in sharing their stories in supporting us and in campaigning for us. I think the other thing that's different specifically to us is that we see trauma and perinatal trauma very systemically. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, what can often, you will know this happen in the birthing world is that people can get quite polarized you know, so people can have very strong opinions and it's this or that. Mm. And people can get quite shouty and things can get lost in the middle, which is mm. where most of us sit. Yeah. Um, and so we were very clear that we wanted to be like a platform for everybody and that everybody's voice was valid and should be heard. But we also very much see that part of the birth trauma picture and issue is the health of teams as well. It, one doesn't exist without the other. There are kind of intertwined circles. So, you know, you get burnt out member of staff providing not quite good enough care, mm. and then a woman becomes traumatized and there you have this kind of loop of circle. Mm. So I think what's been different about us is that, you know, we kind of see it as a big systemic need for change. And we do a lot of work around supporting professionals mm. as well as supporting women and their mm. families yeah and I think that is so necessary yeah because if you're only dealing with one part of it it's never going to really make change and it's mm. it's a bit like closing the stable door after the after the horse has bolted I imagine the approach that you have is also much more rewarding because hopefully you have a better chance of making an impact rather than patching up women who have been traumatized. I think a lot of part of what I do is try to think about how we could make trauma less likely. I know you can never say with any certainty it definitely won't happen because obviously there are circumstances that are out of our control many times. But um, I, I do enjoy working with families to try and think about ways of, of reducing trauma. But mm -hmm. Definitely working with the professionals is is so important. Um, and I imagine at the moment they must be completely, I mean, they were already burnt out and now they're so short staffed. Um, it does, it makes me feel really sad thinking about those people working in hospitals at the moment, trying to deal yeah. with everything. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it is really deeply concerning and we've you know we've, we've published two reports this year sort of uh, 
hashtagging think trauma now because you know we knew that even before covid that you know rates of burnout and stress and even ptsd in midwives and obstetricians was was high and that you know lots of them were leaving the profession um, and there were going to be you know future gaps in terms of who we need to recruit and numbers and this was pre-covid so you know you can think about everything that they've been asked to do and that they faced um you know in addition um you you know you would expect that things have probably got worse rather than better and again we did a recent survey of professionals and you know record numbers were feeling really understandably stressed you know lots thinking about leaving lots saying they hadn't had any real support apart from colleagues um you know and I think that comes back to again that you know prevention of trauma is that if you look at what causes trauma yes of course there will be some things that you can't predict mm -hmm. that you know are an obstetric medical emergency or something happening with baby that was unexpected mm -hmm. but you know at least a third are, are, are due to interpersonal factors and that's the group that you should be able to mm -hmm. stop because that's people being burnt out that's people not being trauma aware that's people you know lacking compassion mm. that's people not being kind that's poor communication and you know in some ways you can kind of say how sad that we need to teach and train these things you know because we assume I suppose that kind of inherently people working in healthcare will just do these things but I think, you know, probably if you then think, well, yes, we probably all started off doing these things. But then, you know, we we continued going to work, working 12 hours a day, having a shift where a baby died, having a shift where somebody bullied us, having a shift where we didn't really feel well enough to be at work um, day in, day out without any break or support or debrief. Then you can understand why people's levels of compassion might reduce <laughs> over time um so i think you know it, it's for me it's about we really need to change how we look after our teams you know meaningfully change and that's no mean feat because you know i think most of what we do is lip service you know it's not real meaningful emotional support and our teams are amazing and they are to be valued and to be cherished. And we really rely too much on the goodwill of people. And we ask them to work more, longer hours, harder, mm. you know, and, and people can't do that. These are humans, they're not machines. They can't, you know, that's unrealistic. We wouldn't expect that for the people we care for at work, but yet we're expected to do it ourselves. Mm. So I think it's a huge thing. But I think it really needs to be thought about um, much more creatively. And, you know, the NHS has shown through COVID that it can be creative, it can change, it can evolve, it can do things differently. So, you know, I don't buy the narrative that it can't change, um, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about money or costs. It's just the way we value and look after our teams could be so much better. I hate feeling pessimistic about those sorts of things because what does that say about my experience I think it's like you say it's going to be difficult and 
it seems as though, you know, I've only been working in this field for a few years. You know, I'm already aware of multiple reports in terms of make birth better and all of those things that are trying to say, you know, we need to do this, we need to do this. And it's, you just wonder well, how many inquiries and how many reports mm-hmm. need to happen before actually some changes implemented. I, I completely understand sometimes you feel really hopeless, like, how can I as one individual do something what how can I possibly take on the might of the NHS system or but you know make birth better started with two of us in a tiny room on a cold January day just kind of chatting and you know I think we underestimate what what we can do as individuals to change and you know even if it's something like on your team there is one person responsible for making sure everybody takes their break yeah. or, you know, that in itself would be revolutionary for some teams, mm. you know, so just have one person who actually physically clocks off that everybody's had a break or, mm. you know, have one meeting a week where somebody, this is what we used to do on my ward, you know, once a week, we'd all have an hour, we'd all sit down have a cup of tea. Somebody would bring a cake it was never homemade if it was my week <laughs> on the way in, <laughs> but it was still a cake. Um, and, you know, it was the single greatest thing that we did in the week. And because we all kicked off our shoes, had a chat, really found out who was struggling, who wasn't. It sounds simplistic, but it really worked. And it really just gave us a space to feel valued and to have a moan. Or Sometimes people cried or you don't have to do big grand things to start to increase morale and to start to change things but you know if we don't even try those tiny things things won't change no definitely it has to start somewhere if there are people listening to this who are pregnant and planning a birth um I know obviously now it things may be slightly limited for them in terms of options um depending on where they live but is there anything that you'd say to expectant parents of things that they might be able to do that could reduce their chance of experiencing trauma mm-hmm. during their birth? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, particularly at the moment, it, it's feeling really difficult for people. And I think, you know, we're all carrying this sort of background hum of anxiety of everything's not quite the same. It's all changing. It all feels a bit unsteady and that, you know, understandably is making us feel a little bit anxious. And I think, you know, the thing that you can do the most is is to get as informed as you can. So whether that's about, you know, where you're going to be birthing, you know, for most people now that's going to be hospital rather than home. But I know a lot of hospitals, you know, are doing amazing things in trying to make it more like a homely space you know, know what you can bring, know when your partner's going to be allowed so that you just feel a bit more in control of that Mm. process. Really talk through with your birth partner about all the what ifs, what might happen, you know, if, if this happens, what kind of pain relief might I want, you know, what might it might be like if I go to theatre what might still make me feel more in control there they can dim the lights you can have a gentle cesarean you can you know play music you know it's tiny things you can do to feel more in control and I think also 
really have spoken to your partner about, you know, if I'm in the middle of labor and tired and in pain, you know, can you absolutely make sure you advocate for me in a way that we've already discussed? Mm -hmm. I think often that's a real big cause of trauma for a lot of people is that they expect Mm -hmm. their partner to step up and then are really disappointed when they don't but then when you actually go back with them they didn't really talk about it beforehand Mm. Uh, so I think anything you can do to kind of just be talking about it and thinking about it I think the other thing that I always really say to people and probably have got people grumbling about me all over the place is you know don't be afraid to ask questions don't be afraid to ask for a second opinion. Don't be afraid to ask for your midwife to be swapped. Mm. If you feel instinctively, I just don't feel safe with this person, or I feel like they're not listening to me, or I feel like they're dismissing me, or we just don't kind of connect. Mm. You can, it's completely within your rights to ask for somebody else, mm. to ask for a review. You know, I think people, are inherently really polite and nice and don't want to be seen as being difficult and I would say you're not being difficult at all because this is your experience Mm -hmm. and actually things like that can be very traumatic Mm -hmm. um so you know if you just feel oh gosh I'm not quite sure this is the right fit for me please please say is it possible for me to be allocated to somebody else because it always is um so please don't be afraid to ask questions particularly if it's things you know about medical procedures that you don't understand you know ask why they're being done do they have to be done can somebody talk it through with you because any good healthcare practitioner will will absolutely be able to do that and I think again that's something that's often a source of trauma is, you know, things that are being done where you don't truly feel that you consented or you yeah. didn't really understand why they were happening. Mm. Um, you know, and it's very rare that it's an absolute emergency that people haven't got time to explain to you. Mm. You know, I, people should be explaining what they're doing. So please do ask questions mm. if, if you want to. And that's not just, you know, during... Um, labor but also postnatally as well and I think you know if you you come away from it for whatever reason feeling like it was very difficult or very felt very out of control or felt very frightening you know know that there are lots and lots of sources of support that you can use Um, you know whether that be a debrief or looking at some of the literature on make birth better or seeing your GP but, you know, sometimes for people, they those feelings and thoughts will fade, but sometimes they won't. So I think it's really important to give yourself a bit of time and space, you know, just to kind of keep processing how you feel about it afterwards. I think the main thing antenatally is just talking, 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 being informed, yeah. you know, asking questions, really involving your partner. Of course, you know, the, people always say things like, oh, you know, be flexible, go with the flow, be fluid about how it evolves. And that's easier said than done. You know, of course, we would all want to be like that. But sometimes it can evolve in a way that feels really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what you have to keep coming back to is, you know, doing what you can in the moment to try to still feel in control, mm. you know, to to get your partner to let somebody know if you're feeling worried or anxious. Anything you can do to make yourself feel safer in that moment, whether it's, you know, a breathing technique or grounding yourself back into the moment. 
but ultimately you know just I want people to know that you know I know that everyone going into their labour will make the choices the best choices that they can at that point in time for themselves and their baby and it's never the something that you have done it's never your fault it's mm. never something that you haven't done well enough yeah. um because I think we're really good at blaming ourselves yeah you know just information information as much as you can because I think that gives you a feeling of feeling empowered and in control and able to ask questions um and if you if you don't feel that you can do that can your partner do that for you mm. yeah. yeah what you said about partners advocating is something that I'm really passionate about and it doesn't come naturally probably to most people mm. especially when they're faced maybe with a doctor or a midwife which obviously to them they are the medical professionals in that scenario and it can feel really intimidating to ask questions and and also you have this feeling of well they're the experts so they know what they're doing and I should just trust them and so it's really difficult to ask in the heat of the moment I mean I know that my partner when we were preparing for the birth of our first daughter I was quite confident actually that he might advocate for me and we you know we did the I went to hypnobirthing classes together and he highlighted pages in the book and I thought oh look at him he's really getting into it this is great (laughs) um but actually in the moment he he did he froze and I um I don't I I didn't feel resentment to him in that moment um and I and I did quite a lot of processing of what happened um and you know I don't blame him it was just, I think, potentially it was too too big an ask where he just wasn't prepared enough for what yeah. that might actually feel like in the moment. Yeah. Um, and I always um, send people the link to the resources from uh, Make Birth Better. You've got a, a, a handout on coercive communication, mm-hmm. which I really love. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's really useful. And mm-hmm. I, you know, sometimes I even do a bit of role play with parents in yeah. the lead up, you know, just to see how they really feel um, on the spot. I mean, obviously, it's not quite the same, because they probably have known me before and know that I'm I'm not a doctor and I'm I'm not like I'm not scary (laughs) but um yeah yeah, it's just it it can be good to work through some real examples like you said you know what if this happens and they might say this and what might you say it's really important to to you know to realize that partners in the room can be traumatized too Mm -hmm. I think you said a really important word which was frozen and I think the other thing that's really important for people to think about before is you know how might I respond to stress and that might be me or my partner and I think that's partly so they can perhaps recognize it in each other's but it's also something that I really think that we need to teach maternity staff to recognize more so that you know they can perhaps pick up on it and say are you finding it difficult to ask me questions at the moment is there anything you know because I think people don't recognize it so, you know, if, if we're feeling overwhelmed or out of control, we can freeze. Um, you know, so essentially we can become very detached mm-hmm. and frozen. And that's the sort of hyper arousal response to trauma. Or the other way is that we get very hyper aroused. So we either feel like we want to bolt out the room, which I think you can see dads doing sometimes, or we can get angry, mm-hmm. you know, or irritable because because 
we're stressed essentially but actually I think that if if more maternity teams recognize that that's people feeling acutely distressed rather than arguing say it would enable a conversation to start about you know I'm really sorry you, you seem really upset at the moment is it because it's all feeling a bit overwhelming not not can you stop shouting mm-hmm. you know it's just language again isn't it communication and then and then perhaps we can draw out from people well, yes actually I'm feeling starting to feel a bit panicked and then we can stop things before trauma progresses mm. I think the other big thing for people as well is you know is intuition mm-hmm. I think you know if I had a pound for the amount of times people have said to me afterwards I just knew something was wrong mm-hmm. and I just couldn't get anybody to I just knew something was wrong in my body or I just so I think you know if if you feel that you're somebody that can really tap into your intuition really use it and you know don't be afraid to say that uh, or you know get your partner again to to advocate for advocate for you at that point because I think you know often in birth people are intuitively feeling how they want to move or how they want to stand or what they want to do and I would really say if you can tune into that can be really helpful Mm. yeah definitely I I sometimes talk to um, women about intuition and I think it's something that we are not always that tapped into because maybe we've been taught that to not listen to our intuition and to just do as we're told Um, so it can be quite a good exercise to try and reconnect with what your intuition is telling you I think often people feel it you know really like I remember in my second birth like I really really just suddenly wanted to stand up you know and I I couldn't tell you why but it just you know wanted to do that I remember a midwife came in and said oh you can't you can't stand up and I said why can't I stand up Mm -hmm. you know I'm not on a monitor. I'm not about to give birth imminently. Why why can't I stand up? Oh, well, you know, you, you can't give birth done yet. And I said, well, I don't think I'm, you know, you just think things like that, you know, not helpful. I'm just supposed to stand up for a minute, you know. But, you know, I really felt this sense of wanting to stand. And, you know, yeah. it's much more comfortable for me. Yeah. You often see women doing that, you know, suddenly very strongly wanting to, what or to lean over the bed or you know and those are really powerful you know guiding intuitions I think Mm, absolutely god it makes me feel angry sometimes I've experienced it too with other women I've supported who've been told you know oh you can't you can't do that or no we're not you're not allowed to do that and it's just so frustrating sometimes yeah I mean I think anything that starts with can't shouldn't has got no place in looking yeah. after somebody. Um, no. I mean, the worst one for me, I'll tell you, because it just makes me laugh, <laughs> was when I was in labour with my first daughter and I was right at the end, 40 hours, really exhausted. Wow. Making noises that I kind of, took me a while to realise that it was me actually making those noises. And a midwife who I'd never met before popped her head around the door and said, do you think you could stop shouting so much because you're scaring the people who are on the antenatal visit? <laughs> and shut the door. And me and my husband were like, oh. Um, and I thought afterwards, I thought, mm, I'm not sure that was the most helpful thing to say to me at that oh point. But, um, 
I'd probably be, you know, I mean, I just think, you know, that language is so important. Um, yeah. So many people with trauma can tell you word for word, you know, phrases that were said to them or sentences that, you know, are as fresh in their mind 10 years later mm-hmm. as, well, look at me, you know, 14 years later and I can still remember that. I can remember what she looked like. Mm. You know, it, the, the language you, we use is so important in that moment because you know we're, we're in a really vulnerable position at that time and, and you know the words that we choose can be really harmful so that, that's really important that's something that I've also been wondering about medical school and um when people go to train as midwives is there much attention given to communication because I always wonder yeah. if that's something that's focused on or not I mean I think certainly for medical school I don't really know so much for midwifery but medical school you know there are some sessions where you would do role plays you know and somebody would watch and you know you would um, get feedback but again much more probably around how you've taken the history and if there's bits you've missed rather than well you know the way you said that was you know, have you thought about phrasing it like this? Or can mm-hmm. you understand why somebody might not have understood that? So I think there's bits, but you know, f- for me, I would make it a huge part of mm. um, training. Cause I think when you start practicing, that is the biggest skill. You know, you can learn how to put a- an IV line in, you can learn these practical things, but the biggest skill is, is when you're actually having to communicate with somebody. Mm you know, particularly if they're distressed or in pain or agitated. So I think that's something that most people learn after qualifying, whereas you would hope that it would be the other way around, really. Um, mm. So not as not as good as it as it could be, I think. Yeah, I just I always find it shocking and, I, and I've never really known, you know, what kind of a feature it is um, in in training at medical school but I would have thought that even kind of part of the selection process you might kind of suss out who are the more empathetic or compassionate applicants and um, yeah just given and the amount of stress that you have to deal with and the in terms of people that you're seeing as well and the compassion that you have to show and uh, the the post you shared on your um, Instagram page recently about compassion and kindness you know literally saves lives just it's not a nice to have it's not a soft skill it's like a key crucial part of being um, a healthcare practitioner so yeah it's um I hope that that is something as you say like it's changing all the time in terms of like holistic care and things like that because surely hopefully communication as well becomes a a bigger part of that I've often wondered is birth trauma something that is just recently kind of becoming more acknowledged I mean I know on Monday I was part of one of your training courses at Make Birth Better and I think it was something like it's only been in the recent 20 years that birth trauma has actually been acknowledged as as something and before that it was written off as oh you couldn't you can't get trauma from birth Mm -hmm. um and I've then I've often wondered about my mum and because I've asked her she's had I've, I've got two brothers and she had 
you know, she would say fairly straightforward birth experiences. And I've, I asked her about it once and I said, well, did, you know, did you lie on your back? Were you just on the bed? And she said, well, yes. And I said, well, why didn't you feel that you wanted to move or was it uncomfortable? She said, no, they just told me that's what I had to do. And so I did it. Um, and she would still to this day, she says, I would rather have another baby than go to the dentist. <laughs> so she <laughs> seemingly um, didn't feel traumatized. And I know that trauma is something in the eye of the beholder. So what might seem traumatic to one might not be to the other. So I understand that. But I wonder if, you know, my mum is in her mid 70s. Did women mm. from that generation, I wonder if they understood that there was trauma or it was more just do do as you're told and not question anything what do you think about that I mean I think um yeah you're right I mean birth trauma has only been recognized birth has only been recognized a potential cause of trauma since the 1980s mm -hmm. and you know it, it's still very difficult for a lot of people to understand because for many people of course it's a really positive experience so it's not yeah. like you know talking about war where we can easily understand um I think that, you know, every time I give a lecture, somebody of an older generation will come up and, and tell me about their birth experience. So I think that did it exist then? Absolutely, for sure. Um, you know, it probably wasn't named in any way mm -hmm. um, and it probably wasn't discussed in any way. But did it feel traumatic for women? Yes, I'm pretty sure. I think, you know, obviously culturally it was very different for women. You know, there was mental health, perinatal mental health was not really discussed, you know, there was no screening for it, there was no, you know, there was just wasn't that kind of awareness of it mm. so much. So I suspect a lot of women suffered in silence. And I think, you know, coupled with that, you know, there was a different narrative of just getting on with things, and <laughs> um, very much more along the lines of, you know, you have a healthy baby, that's all that matters so I think it, it's probably left a lot of indeed you know I've met people in their 70s where they've just carried this weight of their birth story for a very long time and had nowhere to take it or share it mm -hmm. um, and you know as soon as they are able to share it found that amazing this sort of you know relief at being able to to talk about it mm. so I think yeah I mean absolutely it will have existed um but I think you know there was just no naming of it mm. and the whole culture around mental health was very different much more stigmatizing than it is even now mm -hmm. so I suspect most women just carried these thoughts and feelings and experiences alone yeah I mean the, the other thing that my mum says which I guess could have helped give me context was um that I think a while ago obviously not recently I was planning a weekend away with some of my girlfriends and she said oh um you know dad yeah he would have gone away with his friends but it would have never dawned on me that I could go away we all have needs it doesn't mean um, that people in my generation do we have more needs maybe we're just more open about saying no actually I need this um and and you say yeah for for my for my happiness and well-being and mental health I I need a weekend away but she said oh, it would have never dawned on me to to ask yeah. for that or to go yeah I mean I think that's definitely better isn't it but still you know if you look at the mother load <laughs> compared to the father load for most women it's still dramatically skewed 
in terms of what they do in the household, in terms of childcare, in terms of all those additional sort of tasks of mothering um you know I think it's still very much carried by women yeah oh, I, yeah I feel that I feel that <laughs> definitely but, I mean, just look at the pandemic as you know having highlighted that mm-hmm. you know the disparities that are there still the inequalities the way more women have lost their jobs than men you know the way women have taken on the homeschooling more than men on the whole this is you know generalisms but you know there's been a lot of data in the last couple of weeks that has really been stark in terms of yeah things have shifted slightly but not not dramatically really for women and have you seen the effects of the pandemic reflected in your practice and the people that you're seeing are you having kind of a higher demand for for clients yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, people are understandably struggling, um, particularly now when it's sort of gone on and on and on. I think, you know, for the first lockdown, a lot of people could kind of coped through that because it still felt, you know, sort of a bit like a novelty. And, um, you know, for some people, it, it was better, you know, because they didn't have to go out and it helped their anxiety. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a lot of people really starting to struggle now for a variety of different reasons mm. and, you know, people facing financial pressures and mm. worrying about their children and schooling and mm-hmm. um, and just, you know, as humans, this is a very prolonged, very intense situation for us to be going through. Mm. And I think the biggest thing now for most people I think that I talk to is just this sort of fatigue with it all of just everything feeling harder yeah heavier you know more tiring um because you know we're not we're not meant to be parents plus teachers plus you know in isolation it's it's not a natural state for us so it's understandable that people are starting to struggle Mm. And the theme of this podcast is tipping the balance and the idea that, you know, you don't just arrive one day in a a good mental health and yay, I've made it. (laughs) That's the end of the story. It's it's this kind of ongoing um, work and that, you know, some days you might feel not so good and other days you might feel okay and other days you might feel much better. Um, But I mean, talking for hearing from you kind of on a personal note are there things that you find help you um in your kind of daily balancing yeah a lot and you know it's absolutely that it's a daily ongoing lifelong thing it's not like you suddenly just nail it and it's all perfect um and you know some days I feel like I get it right and some days I feel like I don't at all Mm. you know it's the same for me as everyone else and you know, probably self-care things similar to lots of other things. And, you know, there's nothing sexy about it. A lot of it is routine. It is embedding that into a routine. It is a discipline. It is a practice. You know, so it's things for me like, you know, non-negotiable yoga classes that, you know, I started going to after my daughter was born and just building that in as something that I do every week week in week out um so exercise for me personally is something that I find really helps you know 
just like everybody else, I can have spells where I can't be bothered and I don't do it and, you know, I don't want to do it. But, you know, the the more I get into it and do it as a routine, the better personally I feel. Um, I know, like, for me, another one, you know, sleep is something that is really important for me. I know that's really hard if you're a new parent or, you know, that that's, you know not something you can necessarily control but for me you know with older children I know that you know my sleep is really important for me and that I need to really protect that Mm. um and you know sometimes it's about for me I find you know I need I've spent all day talking and listening and hearing stories and hearing you know things that are very poignant and difficult and stressing and so sometimes for me at the end of the day I need silence and not to do much because I've just done enough you know but some nights some days I might need a bar of chocolate some days I might need a glass of wine you know there are things that are variable and some that things that are good for you and some things that are not so good for you but it's balance isn't it yeah but you know non-negotiables for me would be sleep and exercise because for me personally there's things that always help and always make a difference for me mm-hmm. and I really feel it if I'm not sleeping and I really feel it if I'm not exercising as well particularly now where I'm so much more static than I ever would normally be I'd normally be walking around up and down collecting people from a waiting room you know whereas literally sometimes I'm sitting down at nine and not standing up till five and mm-hmm. um, you know, so I would never normally do that. So for me, it's even more important to go outside and even if it's just a 10 minute walk around the block, mm-hmm. but just to kind of get a breath of fresh air and move my body gently. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What you said about discipline and things kind of being embedded into your routine. I think that's something that I feel I would like to get better at doing myself. Uh, and I think it was only when... I had some CBT therapy after my second daughter was born. And I think I'd always told myself to just listen to my intuition. And if I didn't feel like doing something, then don't do it. But then what ended up happening was I never left the house. um, And so it actually made it worse. Um, (laughs) So that was something that I learned through, yeah, doing which I should say it's cognitive behavioral therapy if anybody doesn't know what CBT is but um yeah so and it's it's really something quite recently that I've come to understand that discipline isn't a bad thing I think there can be a lot of negative connotations with that word um but actually it's good but I think it's also you know for me it's about modeling you know to my children that I matter I need time for me I you know I want to do exercise not for my health you know to be strong and healthy um and it's you know it's saying that I am just as worthy of all the love and care that you know I give to you that I give to the people I work with that so I think we're really good at doing it for everyone else and then neglecting ourselves and you know I really learned that the hard way through my early career you know because I was 
a new consultant, tiny children, you know, just consistently getting sick, mm. run down and, you know, just thought I'm actually giving everything to everybody else all the time. But there's nothing there for me. And I think we have to sometimes battle with the narrative that that's selfish mm-hmm. somehow, that we're not worthy of that, mm-hmm. which of course is ridiculous, you know. Um, but, you know, that's why I say for me, it's been like a practice it's something I have to practice at yeah that you know it's okay to do this I am worthy of this one hour it is one hour of my week <laughs> and then you know actually what I found is that gets easier and easier and then it just becomes something that I do yeah. um but you know I, that has taken me years mm-hmm. you know it's not something I think that comes easily to most of us no. um and I do think it's something that you know we we need to just keep trying you know over time yeah absolutely um and that's I think that's part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast as well as to kind of explore that and it's so interesting you learn so much just by talking to other people and hearing you know how they deal with things and it really helps to kind of expand your awareness and yeah I've learned so much from talking to every single person um so it's really it's really really great and you've been so wonderful Rebecca (laughs) thank you for I know that you're busy and I've made you sit down for an extra hour you could have been out Uh, walking (laughs) go run up and down the stairs a few times don't worry (laughs) um yeah well you've got a dog haven't you you take your dog Uh, yes I've got to take him out later so yeah Yeah, we we've got a dog well we we had a family dog and now she lives with my dad he he has parkinson's and she's his therapy dog um so we're we're getting a new puppy in the next two weeks so um (laughs) i'm sure you'll see lots of pictures on my instagram of our new puppy perfect i love a puppy photo who doesn't love a puppy photo i know well hopefully that can brighten everyone's days a bit as well (laughs) I mean, I have to say that's another thing that, you know, we also got a puppy, I think, like half the country in lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, actually, it's been a complete joy because, you know, you have to go out and walk them. Um, it, even just, you know, looking at things changing seasonally, um, you know, it's I found it amazingly mindful just walking the dog. Mm. um and just also they just think you're the bee's knees like constantly (laughs) so so it's like the nicest sort of form of love um that you know it's been very joyful actually yeah I can't wait and I know that because discipline isn't something that yeah and like you say comes naturally to me having a dog actually means that I will get out and walk her so I really can't wait for that because I won't need to make any excuses or feel Mm -hmm. like I'm being selfish because I'm actually have to do it so I can't wait (laughs) photo soon please yes I will and thank you so much I hope you've got time for a quick cup of tea before your next call yeah yeah no problem at all it's really lovely to talk to you yeah lovely to talk to you as well I know you're gay